Okay, good morning. Bishut Chemes. Tomorrow is Shiva Asar B'Tammuz, the fast of the 17th of Tammuz, which ushers in this period of mourning for the destruction of the first and second temples, culminating with Tisha B'Av, the fast of the 9th of Av. I'd like to explore together with you this morning the status of the Arbat Somot, the four fasts in light of the miracle of the modern state of Israel. The Navi Zechariah, in the eighth chapter, prophesied that one day our fasts, our four fasts that were instituted in connection with the Churban, will one day be turned into feasts, into festivals. But when will that be? Following the miraculous return of the Jewish people to their ancestral homeland, in the 19th and 20th centuries, and in the wake of the Hakamat Medina, the miraculous birth of the State of Israel, and later the dramatic reclamation of Yerushalayim and Harabayit, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, a number of leading rabbis, leading poskim, discussed and debated the relevance of Tisha B'Av, along with the other fasts instituted by Chazal to mourn the destruction of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. Now with Jewish sovereignty, here in the land of Israel. And while the notion of nullifying Tisha B'Av and the other fasts may sound shocking, right? In fact, in 1666, it's one of the things that Shabtai Tzvi did. He abolished Tisha B'Av and turned it into a feast, into a festival. Uh, but, but this question is not a new question. And this question was actually first asked some 2,500 years ago with the return of the Jewish people here to the land of Israel in the Shivat Zion, the return to Zion in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah during the Second Commonwealth. And as the Beit HaMikdash was being built, the Jews of Bavel sent a message to the Kohanim, the priests and the Nevi'im, the prophets here in the land of Israel, asking them to inquire of Hashem here in source number one, Zechariah Perek Zion, Pasuk Gimel, they asked the Nevi'im, the Kohanim, shall we still weep and mourn in the fifth month? What is the fifth month? If you're counting from Nisan, the fifth month is Av. So they're referring to Tisha B'Av. They're asking, shall we still mourn Tisha B'Av? Shall we still observe Tisha B'Av as a fast, even though now that we've returned to Eretz Yisrael, and the Beit HaMikdash is in the process of being built. Hinazer ka'asher asiti zekama shanim, shall we abstain? Hinazer, from like the Lashon, same Lashon as Nazir, shall we abstain from all of these things, from, let's say, physical pleasures, as ka'asher asiti zekama shanim, as I have done for many years already. Okay, and in Perek Chet, Zachariah, oh, and by the way, I'll just mention that uh, Rashi here in source number two points out that it was Dafka Anashim Tzadikim, Dafka the righteous people in Bavel who sent this question to the Kohanim and the Nevim. And in Perek Chet in chapter 8, Zachariah provides the famous answer, Pasuk, that we're all familiar with here in source number three. Koamar Hashem Tzvakot. This is what Hashem has said. Tzom Harivii, Vitzom Hachamishi, the fourth fast. And the fifth fast, the, the fast of the fourth, and the fast of the fifth, what are we talking about? What's the fast of the, right, the fast of the fourth is, is tomorrow, the 17th of Tammuz. Tammuz is the fourth month. And the fast of the fifth month, that is Tisha B'Av, of course, right? V'tzom Shvi'i. what's the fast of the seventh month? Tzom Gedalia, correct. V'tzom Ha'asiri, and the fast of the tenth month, that is what? Asara B'Tevet, okay, the tenth of Tevet, okay. These days will become occasions, days of joy and gladness, happy festivals. Yamim tovim, yantif, moadim tovim. For the house of Judah, for the Jewish people. And then, interestingly, the prophet ends with these three words, v'ha'emet v'ha'shalom ehavu. But you shall love truth and peace. 
Interesting, the prophet ends with these three words, instructing the Jewish people to pursue peace. Why that is, maybe we'll come back to that later on this morning. But the intent of this nevuah is unclear. When exactly will these days be celebrated as days of joy and gladness for the house of Judah, for the Jewish people? That's our question this morning. And the first perek of Masachet Rosh Hashanah asks this very question. What does this prophecy mean? That these days will one day be transformed for the Jewish people, for the house of Judah, into feasts and festivals. And first we'll begin with the Mishnah. The Mishnah there, here in source number four, the Mishnah records or instructs how at six points during the year, there were messengers that would be sent out from Yerushalayim to inform the Jewish people about the Rosh Chodesh, so as they may know to observe certain holidays which fall out in those months. So the Mishnah here in source number four records, Al Shisha Chodashim Hashluchin Yotzin. Six months, the messengers would go out, Al Nisan Mipnei HaPesach, they would have to go out and inform the people when Rosh Chodesh Nisan was, so people would know when to observe Pesach. Al-Av mipnei ha-Tanit. Rosh Chodesh Av, so that they know when to observe the Tanit. Which Tanit is that? Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, right? Okay, Al-Elul mipnei Rosh Hashanah. Elul, because of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, of course, falls out at the beginning of Tishrei, so you had to send them out already in Elul. Okay. Al Tishrei mipnei takanata moadot, al Kislev mipnei Chanukah, val Adar mipnei Purim, etc., etc., etc. Ukeshe beit hamikdash kayam yotzin af al iar mipnei Pesach katan. When the temple stood, they would also send out messengers in iar because of Pesach katan, Pesach sheni. But the Gemara asks a question: Why does the Mishnah leave out the months of Tammuz and Tevet? Right. We have in Tammuz the fast of the seventeenth Tammuz, which is tomorrow. And in Tevet, we have the 10th of Tevet, Asara Tevet. So the Gemara asks this question, right? And we'll see the Gemara answers, well, it depends. Maybe there are times when those fasts are not observed. Maybe because those fasts are no longer relevant, as the Navi Zachariah has prophesied. Or maybe they're optional. So take a look at the Gemara. The Gemara asks this question. Right? Why not have them go out? Why not send messengers in Tammuz and Tevet as well because of these public fast days that our sages have instituted? After all, we have messengers go out in advance of Av or really after Rosh Chodesh Av to tell people when the Rosh Chodesh was. Okay? So, so he brings this pasuk that we just read from Zechariah Perek. My dechtiv, what is the intent of the pasuk? Etc., etc., etc. And he notes that they are called both what? Tzom and Sason Vesimcha. In other words, the verse in Zechariah refers to these days as as as. Tzom, as fasts, right? Tzom ha-rivi'i, tzom ha-chamishi, and then calls them days of sason and simchan, mo'adim tovim. So which one is it? That's the question. That's the question. Kare lehu tzom, they're called fasts. Kare lehu sason v'simchan, they're also called days of joy and gladness. Which one is it? And the answer he provides is, bizman sheyesh shalom yula sason simcha. Ein shalom tzom. When there is peace, shalom. And we're going to have to explain what that means. What's the intent of the Gemara? What's the intent of Rav Chana Barbizna in the name of Rav Shimon Chasida? But when there is peace, those days will be days of joy and gladness. Ein shalom, but in the absence of peace, tzom. And that's how he reconciles how these days are called both tzomot, fasts, as well as days of joy and gladness. Okay? Comes along Rav Papa and says f- the following. I'm Rav Papa Hachi Kamar. No, this is what it means. Bizman sheyesh shalom yulis sason lisimcha. 
Rav Papa adds something. When there is joy and gladness, right? when is there joy and gladness? When are they, these days going to be transformed into days of joy? That's when there's shalom. So he agrees with Rav Shimon Chasida. But then he adds something. He says, yesh shmad, when there is shmad, when there is persecution, when there is oppression, that's when there's tzom. However, Rav Papa adds a unique status, which is maybe very relevant to the times we are living in. Certainly there were great Gaonim and Rishonim that felt that it was certainly relevant to the times that they lived in, you know, 800, 900 years ago. He says, what about if there is ein shmad ve'en shalom? On the one hand, there's, there's no oppression and persecution, but there's not shalom, there's no peace. So you have to ask, well, what does that mean? And we'll have to f- define all of these terms. But there's this status that's sort of this gray area that's in the middle. On the one hand, there's no persecution, there's no shmad. On the other hand, we haven't achieved shalom yet, right? In that case, Rav Papa says that these fasts are voluntary. And that's how he explains the sugya here. Ratsu, if people want mitani, they could fast. Ratsu, but if they want ain't mitani, they don't have to fast. In other words, it's optional. There's a period of time where there's this gray area where these fasts are going to be optional, says Rav Papa. If you're just walking in now, there are some source sheets. Oh, if not, here, let me give you a, a, a source sheet. Um, we spoke about AI a few weeks ago. We're speaking about the four fasts, Bizman Hazeh, in light of Shabbat Sabutamu's tomorrow. So Rav Papa, he adds that this... This qualification, if there, on the one hand, is no shmad, no oppression, on the other hand, there is no shalom, which we have to define, these fasts are optional. Okay? Ihachi, the Gemara asks, so if so, Tishabav nami. So then, Tishabav also, right, should be optional, in which case, why does the Mishnah that we just saw relate that they sent messengers at the beginning of Av to inform people when the Rosh Chodesh was so they know when Tisha B'Av is. If the fasts become optional in the absence of Shmat. And Amar Rav Papa, Rav Papa answers, no. Tisha B'Av is different. Shani Tisha B'Av. Why? Because many tragedies took place on Tisha B'Av. As we know, the Mishnah in the fourth parak of Masechet Ta'anit records five tragedies that took place on Tisha B'Av and throughout Jewish history. Many, many tragic events, many calamities have fallen on Tisha B'Av or around Tisha B'Av. We've spoken about that in the past together. Da'amar Mar, as the Master said, Tisha B'Av charav habayit the first and second temples were destroyed. Vinilke Betar, and during the Bar Kochba rebellion, between the years of 132 and 135 CE, the Romans, they destroyed Betar, they conquered Betar, which was a, uh, a major stronghold of the supporters of Bar Kokhba, and the city of Jerusalem was plowed over. Jerusalem was turned into a pagan city, Aelia Capitolina, if I'm getting right, Aelia Cap, something, something to that effect. Uh, by the Romans. Okay, so Rav Papa says Tisha B'Av is different, and that's how he explains the Mishnah and why the Mishnah says that they send out messengers in Av in advance of Tisha B'Av, because Tisha B'Av still applies because of the many tragic events that took place on Tisha B'Av. But as I said, we have to define these terms. We have to define Shalom. What, is, what does Shalom mean? Uh, the Gemara said, at least according to Rav Shimon Hasidah, that if there is Shalom, there is no fasting. If there is peace achieved, then these days will be days of Sasson and Simcha. These days will be transformed for the house of Judah into Moadim Tovim. So Rashi, here in source number five, where I've underlined, defines Shalom as She'en Yad Hagoyim Takifa Al Yisrael. It's the absence of persecution. Right? It's the absence of oppression, okay? So in the absence of persecution and oppression, these days should be celebrated. We shouldn't fast on these days. These days should be celebrated. 
here in source number six, the Rashba, where I've underlined, explains Shalom as the following. Perush bizman shalom sheyisrael shruyin al admatan. Okay? It's when the Jewish people, how would you define shruyin al admatan? They are living here on their land. Maybe a yishuv, a settlement of Jewish people, a return of the Jewish people to their soil is enough to uproot these festivals according to the Rajba here. Okay? Very interesting, which certainly would have a major nafkamina, bizman hazeh. Others explain the Rajba and understand the Rajba to mean Jewish sovereignty. It's not enough to merely have a yishuv, a settlement, but maybe it requires ribonut, Jewish sovereignty. Also, big nafkamina, bizman hazeh. Uh, and it's not, not just the Rajba, there are others as well. You have the, the Ritva and the Ran. Okay? And so, well, so, so, so we'll see. It's interesting. On the one hand, Rashi defines Shalom as the absence of oppression and persecution. Right? But then Rashi says something interesting. Where I've underlined at the very top in source number five, Bizman Hazesh She'ein Beit HaMikdash Kayam. Rashi and the Rabbeinu Hananel here in source number seven, and Tosfos and the Ramban and the Ritva and the Tashbeits and many other Rishonim, they define a time of Shalom as a time when the Beit HaMikdash is standing. In other words, it's not enough just to have peace. It's not enough even to have Jewish settlement or Jewish sovereignty here, Alad Mata Kodesh, but peace, real shalom, implies a Beit HaMikdash standing. Okay? So certainly, as far as shalom, according to these major Rishonim, we still have not achieved true shalom, true peace without a Beit HaMikdash. However, as we saw, according to Rav Papa, there is this sort of middle ground. There's a time when there is no peace, but yet there is no shmad. In which case, Rapapa says that the fasts, at least the three minor fasts, are optional. Ratsu mitanin. Ratsu ein mitanin. Okay, that's the shita of Rapapa. So it's interesting, according to the Rabbeinu Hananel, if you look here, he writes, what is Shalom? Klomar, Kolzman Shabbat Mikdash Kayamia La Sasson Simchai defines Shalom as a Beit Mikdash, Yeshmad Son. But what about this middle ground? Ain Shmad Vein Shalom. Rabbeinu Hananel says, Kigon Ata, like right now, Bizman Hazet. Today, it's interesting, you know, Rabbeinu Hananel, uh, when did he live? Rabbeinu Hananel lived in the, uh, the 10th, 11th century. So, he lived from, 19, from 965, almost said 1960. He lived from 965 to 1055, okay? So already in his time, he felt that the three minor fasts were optional because on the one hand, there is no shalom, there is no Beit HaMikdash, and he defines shalom as the presence of a temple. However, there is no shmad. And so according to our Papa, you have this, this middle ground where in the absence of shmad, Right? And in the absence of Shalom, Kigon writes, The fasts are optional. Okay? However, uh, and as I said, uh, you, you do have Geonim uh, and Rishonim who rule that, again, in the absence of Shalom, which is either as we said, Jewish settlement and sovereignty, or a Beit HaMikdash, but in the absence of Shmad, in the absence of persecution and oppression, these fasts would be optional, like Rabbeinu Hananel said. Uh, and many Gaonim and Rishonim rule like the Rabbeinu Hananel. However, the Ramban here, in his Torah Adam, at the very bottom of the page, in source number eight, he rules that today the fasts are indeed obligatory. They're not optional. Why? Because the Jewish people over time have accepted them as obligatory. And that acceptance generates the obligation upon every individual. And many Rishonim rule like the Ramban. We'll see. That seems to be the sheet of the Rambam as well. And then he adds something interesting. Look here 
at source number eight where I've underlined Perush Yesh Shalom Hainu Bizman Shabita Mikdash Kayam Yulis Sasonu Simcha. Okay, and then he writes, skip to where I've underlined next, Vachshav Kvaratzu, and the page Vinagu Lihita Nod Bahem, the Kiblu Malei. Right, Rav Papa said Imratzu. If they want, they can fast. If they want, they don't have to fast. It's optional. Rabban says no. The Jewish people have already chosen and accepted upon themselves these fasts. Kiblu Malehem. Lefichach, therefore, asur liyachid lifrotz gdaran. Therefore, it's prohibited for an individual to make a breach in the fence. The kol shekain bidorot halalu. And all the more so in our generations. Now here the Ramban relates to the time in which he lives in. He lived in Spain when there certainly was persecution. He lived from 1194 to 1270. And he writes all the more so. Kol shekein bidorot alalu in these generations. Shaharei ba'avonotenu shirabu. Due to our abundant sins. Yesh shmad b'Yisrael ve'en shalom. There is persecution. And there is not shalom. Here he defines shalom as safety and security. Therefore, everyone is obligated to fast, even during the three minor sins, okay, because of Divrei Kabbalah, we've accepted, and it's a takanat nevi'im, okay, the fact that the Jewish people have accepted these fasts upon themselves has tremendous significance for the Ramban, and not just for the Ramban, that's the way other Rishonim Paskin will see, that's the sheet of the Rambam, that's how the Shulchan Aruch rules, here in source number 11. So take a look at the Rambam here. And the, the Rambam's approach requires a little examination. But first, here in source number 9, the Rambam uses this Lashon, Yesh sham yamim shekol Yisrael mit'anim bahem mipnei hatsarot she'iru bahem. The Rambam begins the fifth chapter of his Laws of Fasts by saying there are days on which all of Israel Kol Yisrael fasts because of the tragic events that took place during these days. So you see for the Rambam it's not optional. The Rambam here rules like the Ramban that we saw that these days have been accepted. That's certainly how the Magid Mishnah understands the Rambam. In Halacha Hay, he reiterates Vinagu Kol Yisrael Bizmanim Elul Hitanot Again, all of Israel fasts during these days but then he writes at the end in Halachi Yutet how in the future these days will be transformed into festivals. He cites the prophecy of Zechariah that we began with, chapter 8, and cites the Pasuk. And interesting, he, he quotes the entirety of the Pasuk, including those last three words, Vahayamet Vahashalom, Eavu, where the prophet instructs us to pursue truth and peace, love, truth and peace. And the question, of course, why is that? The Rambam, Kedarko Bakodesh, often truncates psukim, abbreviates psukim, and those three words really, you know, it would seem uh, they, they are not necessary for what the Rambam's trying to say here. He could have left them out. We're going to come back to that in a moment, but just look here at the very bottom uh, of source number 10, the, the last line of the Magid Mishnah, where the Magid Mishnah explains this approach to the Rambam. The way he interprets the Rambam is that nowadays the minhag is that we observe all of these fasts, even the three minor fasts, which some Geonim and Rishonim felt today are optional due to the fact that there's an absence of Shmad even in the absence of Shalom, the sheet of Rav Papa. But the Magad Mishnah says, but Rabbeinu, the Rambam, believes that they today are an obligation. Perhaps, just like the Ramban, he feels that the Jewish people over time have accepted these fasts upon themselves. Or maybe for another reason, we'll see in a few moments. But therefore, he writes that these fasts are obligatory until the building of the Holy Temple, speedily in our days. And this is how the Shulchan Aruch, here in source number 11, rules as well in Siman Tav Kuf Memtet. These fasts are obligatory nowadays. What's interesting is the Rambam, in his commentary to the Mishnah, here in source number 12, 
right? Something interesting. That even during the second temple period, with the temple standing, there were those who fasted during the three minor fasts and even on Tisha B'Av. And that's how the Rambam in his Perish HaMishnah, at least, reads the sugya there in Rosh Hashanah on Daf Yud Chet that we began with. Uh, take a look where I've underlined in source number 12. The Rambam writes the following. Ubebayit during the second temple period, lo lo asiri velo the way the Rambam understands the sugya there, why didn't they send messengers out at the beginning of Tevet and Tammuz to tell people about Asarab Tevet and the fast of the 17th of Tammuz? Well, the answer is because during those days, at that time, the Rambam here in his Perusha Mishnah understands that the Mishnah is speaking about the Tkufat Bayit Sheni, the second temple period, when he felt those fasts were optional. So what does that mean? It means that the Rambam understands that Rav Papa's statement of the absence of both Shalom and the absence of both Shmad applied to the Second Temple period. What does that mean? That during the Second Temple period there was no Shalom and yet there was no Shmad and therefore that's when we apply this approach of Rav Papa, this sheet of Rav Papa, that the fasts, at least the three minor fasts, are voluntary, okay? But the temple was standing, right? That's redemption, isn't it? How could that be? And then take a look where I've underlined next. And he writes, tisha b'av. And they even fasted during the ninth of Av, during the second temple period. The ninth of Av was observed as a fast. And that's how the Rambam understands why they sent messengers, as the Mishnah records, out at the beginning of Av to tell people when Tisha B'Av would fall out, when Rosh Chodesh was, so they would know. Again, the Rambam reads the Mishnah as it's being taught during the Second Temple period. For the Rambam, they fasted during the Second Temple period on the ninth of Av, and the other fasts were optional. So, how do we understand that? I mean, here in the shadow of the Holy Temple, they're fasting? Right? This, is, this is very shocking. It's very shocking. So, what do we know about the Second Temple? Well, we know that, unfortunately, the Second Temple was but a mere shadow of the first. The miracles that took place daily in the first temple were absent in the second temple as the Mishnah and the Gemara record. We know that during Bayit Sheni there was a lot of corruption. There were corrupt Kohanim. There were individuals who paid for the honor to serve as Kohen Gadol rather than electing those individuals who were perhaps appropriate for the position. Uh, there was Sinat Chinam it was baseless hatred in fact according to our sages that was the cause of the destruction of the second temple and it's interesting as I pointed out I'll take questions in a moment as I pointed out at the very beginning of the Shi'ur the Navi Zechariah ends his prophecy there when he foretells how these days will one day be transformed for the Jewish people, for the house of Judah, into days of joy and gladness and festivals, he adds three words at the end, ve'ha'emet ve'ha'shalom ehavu. He instructs us to pursue and love peace and truth. And the Maharsha, here, in source number 13, the Maharsha explains that maybe true shalom is achieved when what? True shalom is achieved when there is peace, there is unity. When the Jewish people have a sense of achdut, and in the absence of that, there is no shalom, and maybe that's why they fasted even during the Second Temple period. On the one hand, they were fasting in the shadow of the Holy Temple, the Temple was standing. But on the other hand, you can ask, what is redemption? What is Geulah? Maybe it's not enough to have a Beit HaMikdash standing. Maybe 
real redemption is emet and shalom. Okay? So take a look at the Marsha. He writes, he understands those last three words of that prophecy as what? Uh, a prerequisite for the transformation of these fasts into feasts. But if you don't have among you peace and truth, it's going to go back to fasting. The Gemarion Yoma asks, why was the second temple, why was the second temple destroyed? After all, during the second temple period, there, there was, uh, there was Torah, and there was acts of kindness, because there was baseless hatred. And that's why, at the very end of this verse, it says what? And maybe we can understand the Rambam and how the Rambam writes in his Perish HaMishnah that they fasted on Tisha B'Av during the Second Temple period while the Temple was standing and the other three fasts were optional because maybe in light of this passage of the Marsha, they were missing something so fundamental. They were missing emet and shalom. And that's the pshat of Rav Moshe Salavechik. And this was uh, written up here in source number 14 in the OU's Masora, which was a, was a choveret, a Torah journal, which has a lot of nice Torah from Rav Salavechik and Torah that he shared in the name of his father. And uh, just to summarize for the sake of time here in source number 14, you can take a look at it at, uh, at, at your convenience uh, on your own time. But he says this very thing. That's how he explains the Rambam. And it's not enough to have a Beit HaMikdash standing. Real redemption requires emet and shalom. Very, very interesting. Um, we'll skip sources 15 and 16 as they relate specifically to Tisha B'Av and the observance of Tisha B'Av. But uh, let's, let's fast forward uh, about uh, 2,000 years <laughs> from the, the Second Temple period to, uh, to the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, so even before the Hakamat HaMedina, the founding of the State of Israel, there's already a sense that the nascent Yeshuv here in Israel was witness to the beginning of the process of redemption. It's well known that according to the Vilna Gaon, already in his day, in the 18th century, he believed that the process of redemption, the process of Geula had already begun, the footsteps of the Mashiach, he felt that we are on the heel of the Mashiach. This is recorded in a number of places, including in a work called Kol Hator, where he talks about the different steps based on Kabbalah, but we know that he himself wanted to come on Aliyah to Israel, but was prevented from heaven, prevented from above, like Moshe Rabbeinu. He writes in a letter to his family why that was, unclear. But he sent his Talmidim to bring about redemption, which he believed was going to take place through Biderech Hateva, through the natural order, the natural process. And in fact, his Talmidim who came to Jerusalem and in Israel in the early 19th century, the first half of the 19th century, they established a Jewish majority here in Jerusalem. Up to that point, there was not even a Jewish majority in the city of Jerusalem. Um, and uh, they, they saw whether it was the uh, fact that the debts that the previous Ashkenazic settlement uh, about a century prior had accrued was forgiven. The Furman, they, they, the loans and the debts were forgiven. There were uh, they were being uh, initially harassed and beaten, but uh, once uh, uh, Suleiman the Great had forgiven the debts and granted them permission to settle the old city of Jerusalem and rebuild the, what, what today we call the Jewish Quarter, although the Jewish Quarter is a misnomer, it's much less than a fourth of the old city, but to, to rebuild, uh, including the beautiful Churvashul, the Beit Yaakov Synagogue, which was built by the Tamidei Hagra, was finished and dedicated in 1864, um, they saw these things as, as the redemption unfolding before their very eyes. And, and then there was another event which some saw 
as perhaps a, uh, a herald or heralding in of the Geula, and that was the appointment of Sir Herbert Samuel as High Commissioner of Palestine in 1920. And we'll look together in a moment at a fascinating letter from Rav Kook, which is printed in the fourth volume of the Igrot Hariyah or Haraya, here in source number 17. Now, as I said, for some members of the Yishuv, including great rabbis, the very appointment of Sir Herbert Samuel as High Commissioner was a sign that redemption was imminent. After all, Samuel was the first Jew in almost 2,000 years to govern here in Israel. There was no leadership, there was no Jewish governor for almost 2,000 years. Who was Samuel? He was a Jewish politician, a member of parliament in England. In fact, he was the he was a cabinet member. He was the first Jewish cabinet member, or I should say the first unconverted Jewish cabinet member. I think, that, you know, meaning he didn't convert to he didn't have to convert to Christianity. Um, he was a proud Jew, while not an observant Jew. He grew up as a traditional observant Jew, um, and he did good things. He was influential in the Balfour Declaration in, in, in getting the Balfour Declaration to happen. Uh, he was influential in women's suffrage. Okay, that means voting. Doesn't mean suffer. <laughs> suffering. Um, uh, he did good things. Unfortunately, um, he did such, uh, some things that were maybe less, uh, less favorable or, or uh, less good for, for the Jews. He, as high commissioner, he ultimately made concessions uh, to try and appease the Arab community. He slowed Jewish immigration to Palestine. He appointed Haj Amin al-Husseini, a known extremist, to be the Mufti in Yerushalayim. The same Haj Amin al-Husseini who famous, famously met with Hitler in Berlin in 1941. There's that famous picture of the two of them plotting against the Jews. You've probably seen that picture. So, unfortunately, he did not live up to these expectations and hopes and dreams that many had for him. But as I said, he was the first Jew in almost 2,000 years to govern the land of Israel. So there were Jews, including rabbis, who saw this as a major step in the redemption that is unfolding. And some even wanted to know if we should accord him the status as Melech Israel, the king of Israel. We know there are many mitzvot related to the king of Israel. There was a great postsake by the name of Chaim Hershenson. Chaim Hershenson was born in Tzfat. He lived from 1857 to 1935. He was involved with Ben uh, Yehuda at reviving modern Hebrew. Many think, you know, the modern Hebrew language was revived by Ben Yehuda and, and these secular Zionists. But uh, Ben Yehuda consulted with rabbis. Right? And, and a lot of modern Hebrew is based on rabbinic Hebrew, the Hebrew of the Mishnah, uh, the rabbinic literature, the Hebrew in the Rambam. Um, and he became a very, very interesting figure. He ultimately moved to the United States and became the chief rabbi of like Union City, Hudson County, Hoboken, Jersey City, that whole area there along the Hudson River near the Lincoln Tunnel and Hudson Tunnel, for those familiar. Um, and, and you see that in the, in the introduction to his works. And he wrote, uh, he wrote Chuvot and he wrote a multi-volume work known, known as Malki Bakodesh, where he asks the question, can we create a modern democracy in the land of Israel? Or must it be a monarchy? Do we have to appoint a king? We have a mitzvah in the Torah, som tasim alecha melech, but what about creating a monarchy, right? Or what about, excuse me, creating a democracy? He was uh, actually heavily influenced by de Tocqueville, okay? So um, there's correspondence in his, in his collected letters and elsewhere in his uh, published writings about the appointment of Herbert Samuel, and he was asked, you know, do the laws of the king of the Melech be Israel apply to Herbert Samuel? Um, does he have to write a Sefer Torah like the king does? And as you know from the, the Gemara and Horiot, uh, if the king sins, he has to bring a special offering. Would Herbert Samuel have to bring such an offering? Very interesting questions. So take a look at this letter here in source number 17. Rav Kook, the first chief rabbi here in pre-state Palestine, was asked, now with the appointment of Herbert Samuel as king and with the return, as, as, king, as high commissioner, excuse me, and with the return of the Jewish people to their ancestral homeland, to their soil, maybe we should no longer observe Tisha B'Av and these fasts. Okay, based on the sugya that we learned together this morning. And look how he begins this letter. Right? He says, Bezrat Hashem, 
Yom Yutet Lechodesh Tammuz Tafresh Pei. This was dated the 19th of Tammuz, 5680, July 1st, 1920, just some, you know, 103 years ago. Okay? Almost 103 years ago to the day. And uh, he writes the following. Look at how he continues. Shanari Shona Lachenu Hanitziv Haelyon Shal Eretz Israel Mar Eliezer Ben Menachem Sir Herbert Samuel Yarum Hodo. In the first year of our brother, the High Commissioner of the Land of Israel, Herbert Samuel, may his uh, uh, glory be exalted. Um, but how does he date it? Shanari Shona. That's significant. That's similar to the way we date letters and contracts according to the Jewish king. He related to him almost as king. He says, Shana Rishona, in his first year, so to speak. That's interesting. But that he continues and writes, he's answering Rav Yaakov Tzvi Zisselman, and he's saying, I've received your letter, and I, I, I am full of emotion that Baruch Hashem, we are witness to the beginning of redemption, and our hearts are full of joy, and I, 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 our hearts rejoice at, at the fact that even the Ziknei Hador, even the elders of the generation feel and sense that the light of salvation is upon us, and this is a major sign for the house of Israel and its uh, resurrection and resuscitation. However, however, he continues, Amnam, nevertheless, Bimashin Ogea, I'm reading from the paragraph at the very bottom of the page here, Concerning the fast, I think it's impossible, impossible to nullify the fasts unless we have a holy temple standing with the holy temple in a state of ruin. It's impossible. Efshar to nullify these fasts and to celebrate them as feasts. So uh, he, he said this in relation to both Tisha B'Av as well as the other three fasts, the three minor fasts. Uh, so for Rav Kook, along with many authorities, the Beit HaMikdash in Yerushalayim is a sine qua non. It's a prerequisite for turning our fasts into feasts. And even, as we saw, according to the Rambam, maybe the Beit HaMikdash is not enough. Real redemption requires emet v'shalom. Now, following the Hakamat HaMedinah, you know, the, uh, this letter that we just saw from Rav Kook was written in 1920, but following the miraculous birth of the State of Israel, uh, the leading rabbis and poskim would once again discuss and debate if Israel's independence makes these four fasts irrelevant. And we have telegrams sent from Jewish communities, among them communities in Istanbul and, and Algiers, inquiring of the Rabbanut Roshit, the chief rabbinate here in Israel, inquiring from, at the time, Chief Rabbi Yitzchak Halevi Herzog. And we have a telegram, I didn't reproduce it here, but it's found in a volume of uh, Truman, Torah Journal Truman, it's in the 18th volume, where Rav Herzog also responds in a telegram to these communities, Istanbul, Algiers, and elsewhere, saying that the fast of Tisha B'Av, which is founded in the destruction of the Holy Temple, cannot be nullified, not it nor the other fasts. Once again, this question would arise in the wake of the dramatic events of June 1967. This question would resurface again with a reunified Jerusalem Jewish sovereignty over the old city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, Harabayit Biyadenu. And here I have a tshuva in source number 18 from Rav Chaim David Halevi, a very, very important posek who served as chief rabbi of Rishon Litzion in the later Tel Aviv. And in his tshuvot, he addresses a lot of these contemporary questions. You know, now that we've returned to our land, what now? And, uh, and he, he writes the following, just for the sake of time, I'll summarize, but he says that on the one hand, we've merited the first flowering of redemption with our national independence, but isn't, isn't it clear that it's not really the final redemption until we merit the coming of the Mashiach and the building of the Holy Temple, right? 
And, and he goes on to say, and further, you know, yes, on the one that we've conquered the Temple Mount, Harabayit Adenu, but nevertheless, we can't enter that holy place yet. We can't perform the service there. All the more so, Shualim Hilchuvo, foxes trespass upon it, right? So uh, he says that on the one hand, we've, we've come so far, but on the other hand, yet we still are so far from complete redemption, so far from the goal. And, and, and this dialectic is also reflected in one of the Sichot of Ritzvi Kuk, which was recorded, gave you a, a little passage here in source number 19. We can read it together because I think it's, it, it, it really articulates this unique moment in history that we live in. And he's writing this, this is actually a, a Sicha that he gave, which was recorded, Yom Yerushalayim Tafshin Chafchet. So this is the first Yom Yerushalayim. This is one year after those six miraculous days in June 1967. And he writes, No hand can touch these fasts that were instituted by the prophets. We live during a historic moment in the redemption of Israel. We, we can't, he says, we don't have the authority in the absence of a Sanhedrin, in the absence of Nevi'im to make any changes. We must understand that these fasts today, these fasts are an extension of the root of pain over the destruction of the Holy Temple. And these things pain us until this very day. You know, on Tisha B'Av, we mourn not only the destruction of the Holy Temple, the First and Second Temples, but we mourn tragedies and calamities that took place throughout Jewish history because for many, they are rooted in Tisha B'Av. In other words, by the fact that the Temple is destroyed and by the fact that we are in exile, that's why we have suffered so throughout Jewish history. And that's why all of these things have taken place. And that's why Tisha B'Av is the day on which we mourn all of these oh, tragedies and calamities that took place throughout Jewish history. And he says, but Nevertheless, we have to see the hand of God that has taken place during these days. In other words, we live at this unique moment in history. This is a very powerful line. This line is so appropriate for this unique moment in history that we live in. He says, on the one hand, we should fast and mourn for the destruction of the Holy Temple and the exile. And together with that, we have to see and recognize the light of salvation that continues to grow and unfold in our very day. And in source number 20, we have a, a similar idea expressed by one of his Talmidim, Rav Yaakov Ariel, who himself is a major posseg. Many years was the chief rabbi of Ramat Gan and Rosh Yeshiva of its Yeshivat Hezder. And he also articulates and expresses a similar idea that in the absence of a Sanhedrin, we cannot make changes. Um, he also adds, you know, take a look at the security situation, the Matzah Bitchoni, and the Matzah Ruchani, the spiritual state of the modern state of Israel. On the one hand, we've come so far, but on the other hand, we're still not there yet. And it's this dialectic in which we live. And I'd like to end together this morning by taking a look at a Sicha which Rosalavechik gave in 1968, and he grappled with this question of Tisha B'Av in light of the modern state of Israel. Again, this is in 1968, after the world witnessed those six miraculous days in June, a reunification of Jerusalem, the dramatic and miraculous reclamation of the Temple Mount. And he begins with the question of Echa, because for Rav Salavechik, Echa is not just a Megillah that we read on Tisha B'Av in a darkened synagogue sitting on the floor, but Echa charges us with the task of asking the question, why, how, doing a serious soul-searching, a real Cheshbon HaNefesh, Echa, how could this happen, why? And 
the Rav, and uh, this is, uh, this Sicha was recorded and, and uh, translated, and it's on the Har Etzion website. I gave you the link if you'd like to see it in its entirety. Rosalovitchik asks, does Yom Hatzmut answer the question of Echa? Only fools can think so, arrogant fools, and there are many fools of that sort. It's important to point out, you know, the Rav, he was, on the one hand, a religious Zionist, but he was, he was a moderate religious Zionist. He was a realist. He was a pragmatist. He wasn't um, a messianist. And he says, can a Jewish government or military success be considered a substitute for all the suffering and killing of the years of Israel's exile? It is forbidden to say that this is the recompense for six million Jews who were slaughtered. This is an expression of cruelty and a total lack of sensitivity. Does the rejoicing of the Six-Day War answer all the questions that arose in the period that preceded it? Are we not as puzzled and confused as we had been before it? Did this triumph lessen our sorrow and calm our spirit? Did it resolve our problems and doubts? Is it not incumbent upon us to repeat as did Yirmiyahu, the question of Echa. As long as God's will is as obscure as it, as it was during the dark night of the hiding of his face, as long as historical events have not been clarified from a comprehensive and true perspective, as long as the world mocks us because of our faith in a merciful and gracious God, as long as the mystery of Echa has not found a solution, it is forbidden to abandon Tisha B'Av. As long as a Jew asks Echa, one must continue to fast. Only after we succeed in deciphering the mystery of Eicha we will be able to abandon the fast of the fifth month. And we saw how according to the Rambam, even during the second temple period, in the shadow of the Beit HaMikdash, they fasted on Tisha B'Av and the other three minor fasts were optional as Rav Moshe Salavechik, the Rav's father, explained because there was no Emet and Shalom, which is a prerequisite. Uh, we live during difficult times, as we saw just this week, we live during challenging times, confusing times. We also live during exciting times. We live at a unique moment in history. You know, we've already seen the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah, how one day elderly men and women will sit in the streets of Yerushalayim on their canes. I think if Zechariah lived today, he would say how we'll see one day in Yerushalayim, how retirees come to the OU Center to learn Torah, not calling anyone here old, and how uh, Zachariah continues how the streets of Jerusalem will be filled with boys and girls playing, playing in her streets. The streets will be crowded and filled with children. These are my children and yours and your grandchildren. May we merit to achieve emet and shalom, and may we merit to see the building of the Holy Temple speedily in our days, and these four fasts transformed into feasts and into festivals for the House of Judah for the Jewish people. Amen.